Welcome to the Tear Out the Tags podcast, where you learn to remove the labels that are holding you back. Your life is increasingly defined by simple words that are meant to categorize you. These words are turned into hashtags, making you feel stuck with a limited definition of what you can be in this world. Tags, though helpful online, are ineffective at fully describing how big and extraordinary you are. Let's get started. Hey Team Embolden, it's B. I wanted to preface this episode really quickly to share a little bit of personal feelings I have about the show. As I was editing it, I was filled with emotion behind the gratitude that I feel getting to have a conversation with such a wise and thoughtful person. Dr. G, our guest today, is going to blow your mind. There are so many nuggets in this show that you can take with you throughout your day and apply to your lives. And I changed the show format on this one, and I did that for a reason on this show. Part of the reason is Dr. G has been an integral part of supporting me and cheering for me as I develop Tear Out the Tags and Embolden Label. He has always made me feel smart, capable, and invaluable. But I have to be honest with you guys, I was so highly intimidated by Dr. G when I first met him because of all of my tags and feeling like I was not good enough to have a conversation with this wonderful person. The second reason is I feel it's important that you see that someone who is highly achieved and very accomplished doing unbelievable things in our world still has tags and has removed a lot and overcome a lot to become the successful person that he is. I knew Dr. G would step right into the exercise and blow us away with all of the things that he went through growing up, through college, and into his career life. So enjoy getting to know Dr. G and all of his vulnerability as he introduces himself to you and then shares the unbelievable message that he has for the world and the change that he is working on for all of us. I can assure you that no matter what you're going through right now, there is a nugget in this episode that you need today. Today on the show, we have a very special guest who speaks my language of tags perhaps better than I do. He is a keynote speaker, storyteller, and the status quo agitator. Welcome to the show, Gotham Gulati, also known as Dr. G. Thank you for having me. It's a delight. Every time I get to have a conversation with you, I gain knowledge and I feel like I come out a little bit smarter or perhaps a lot smarter. So I'm just so excited to dive in with you today and have a really real conversation about tags and the amazing projects that you're doing to debunk the status quo of the world. Yeah, thank you. Likewise, the same sentiment right back at you. I think every time we have a conversation when I first met you, there's a lot to learn from you. I, you know, personally, you know, I get my learnings by listening to others and your show is fantastic. So thanks for having me on. Thanks. Yeah, of course. It's great to have you. So I'm going to change up the format today and we are going to dive into the six things written on most tags so that my audience can try to picture what Dr. G looks like. We're going to let my audience try to tag you or label you by you just giving us some nuggets about your life. So this is an experiment. I asked Dr. G if he would be my um, guinea pig, which I'm sure is a, there's a better word. I'll, I'll <laughs> say beta on this. Um, so Dr. G, if I met you and only had an opportunity to externally take you in, what are the three things that I could recognize just based on looks alone? Hmm. Three things on looks alone. I'd probably say I've got an element of scruffiness. There's always a portion of that, whether it's in my beard or 
my hair is messy or what I'm wearing. There's always an element of scruffiness. Number two, I'm, I'd kind of combine the two because they're a little related, but I'm introverted and curious at the same time. So I'm very much in my own thoughts often. So that's probably a, a defining characteristic if you were to see me. The other thing is, well, I guess the most obvious one from an aesthetic standpoint, I'm, I'm Indian, so I'm brown. Uh, <laughs> so um, I guess that would be the first thing that people would probably recognize as well. Yeah, that would that would have been my number one, I think, is just that you have this great medium skin tone. Okay, is there anything that I could assume about you based on your size hmm. or stature? Whew, this is now you're getting well, I appear bigger on screen, meaning I am short. So I'm five seven. And in the Indian population, that's an average height. But here in the US, five uh, ten is usually the average height. So, you know, I, I think to some degree, because of my shortness, um, or at least my perceived shortness, I have to compensate in terms of confidence because the natural assumption is taller people exert more authority and more confidence. And so sometimes I guess people would consider me arrogant, I guess, for lack of a better word, because I have to compensate for the shortness. Mm, interesting. That is really interesting. Oh, now you're going deep. I don't know. I don't know where you're headed with this, but now we're getting into uh, some deep stuff. I know. Well, I just think <laughs> it really starts to show kind of some of our stuff that we've walked through and some of the things that people have assumed about us or mm. how our size shows up. I love having this conversation with men in particular, because we as women think that size is only a relevant conversation for us. And I think it's really important to show how men also deal with this issue. And it may be in a different way than I have, but that's why it's so important to have the conversation. Well, I mean, to add to that, I think another word that would come to mind, and now that you're if we're getting into real vulnerability here, I think a word that I think other people perceive me as, whether it's true or not, is thick. Mm. So I don't want to say fat. I'm not fat. I'm not like lean but I'm thick. In India, there's like the Punjabis have big, we're big bone structured. So that combined with me always struggling with my weight as a child, I was always an obese, I was an obese child. So back then they literally had size sections where you've got small, medium, large husky. I was labeled husky. I was husky. So we'd go to like the Lord and Taylor or the Sears or wherever it is. And we'd have to go to the husky section. And that's very, God, you carry that with you forever. Yeah. Even after you shed that weight, it's hard to let that go. Yeah. Well, once you shed it and know how people treat you on the flip side, like yeah. you see both worlds, right? Like people treat you differently when you're thick and when you're not thick, right? Yeah. Now, the past couple of years, I've been so you know grounded with work and my metabolism isn't the same. So I'm not husky, but you know I've put on a few pounds. And so I'm very conscious about my thickness. Yeah. It's interesting too, how we use words that we know people probably don't love using. I was just on a podcast called Forging Fury. And one of the hosts, Michael said that he's been calling his wife thick. And I'm thinking, not a good plan, buddy. <laughs> and he knows it, right? But it was a funny conversation that we had. It's so funny growing. So I have, so all of my immediate family's here, but my, I have relatives in India. And it's funny when you go to India, they never call you like fat or overweight. They say you're health, healthy. Mm. healthy as like a kind way to say you're overweight. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's the world I grew up in. Well, I like that. That's good manners. We actually have a really large Indian audience. We are being downloaded all over India. So they, oh, wow. I mean, it's pretty neat that you can connect maybe with some of your family members and, um, you know, whatever it is about tear out the tags that resonates in India. I'm really excited to learn and find out. So I actually am dropping an episode tomorrow about 
being a world traveler and learning about all these different places that I'm now being downloaded in that I may not have known much about before. So this is a really fun conversation to have with you learning about the Indian culture and some of the things that you grew up with, which is where we're going to dive into next. And the third category is origin. So this is where were you made? What were the checklist of expectations that you grew up with? We're only going to dive into five. I want like rapid fire. Give me five expectations of what it was to be. Well, but you weren't Dr. G back then. You were Gotham growing up in your family. Five things go. Wow. Well, the first word that I think comes to mind. So I'm first generation here. So I'm a Canadian born Indian American male. So they have a terminology for people like that, what's called ABCD. So that's the first one that comes up. ABCD stands for American born confused Desi. <laughs> and Desi is another term for an Indian. So I guess that would sort of describe me as sort of my mutt background, which is like, you know, I'm, I'm born in Canada, raised in, uh, in America from uh, Indian nationality. So I've got this sort of blend of all sorts of colors and backgrounds and experiences and values, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I, I love it. I mean, it took a while to sort of discover myself and understand the importance and the meaning of all of that. But uh, it's it was really cool to sort of have that growing up um, and difficult at times. Some other things in upbringing, education was just top. I mean, that was, you know, we weren't even allowed to have jobs growing up. So my parents as being sort of immigrants to this country, you know, always focused on making sure that we had an education. So mm -hmm. that was their primary focus. Do they gave us liberties to do whatever we wanted as long as we studied. Um, they didn't force us to get good grades. I think it was just instilled in us that we wanted to work hard. Mm -hmm. And I have two sisters and we're all, we're all doctors in the family. And, and we kind of talked about this. There was a little bit of an expectation to become a doctor, correct? Um, there was an expectation to become a professional. And I put professional in quotes, meaning, you know, either one of those sort of top echelon types of careers, either doctor or lawyer, engineer, any of those probably would have sufficed them. Of course, doctor being number one, just because that was their, my dad was a doctor. Okay. And then his influences was his father-in-law actually was a, was a doctor as well. And that's where he got his influence from. But yeah, so that was, I don't want to say it was pressure. No one pressured me to become a doctor per se. I think I chose that out of my own will, but it was also like, I didn't know anything else. I mean, I was from a crafty standpoint, I was very creative as a child. Mm -hmm. But again, I, that never, it never dawned on me that I could go into a creative field or I could combine a medical field with a creative uh, intention around it. Um, so at that time it was just straight, I was just gonna become a doctor. I just studied and became it and I, I took on the challenge and I, I don't look back, I love it. Yeah. Well, and you're not only a doctor of medicine, you have a master's in business administration and also a master's in public health, correct? That's right. Yeah. What I really find interesting about you is your continuing education is so far beyond those degrees and so far beyond those labels that you wear that are prestige and are, you know, what maybe other people would be intimidated by, but your learning comes a lot from the world as well. Yeah, the world, the world of hard knocks. And sometimes it's funny because I'm a lifelong learner. And sometimes when I'm learning something, I'm like, you know what, if I'm going to spend the time doing it, I might as well get a degree out of it. So oftentimes I just went down that path just to, just to sort of get the degree out of it. But you're right. I think most of my functional experiential learning has just been about, you know, from real life, not, not from the, not from putting my head in the books. Yeah. Yeah. And having a good balance of both is, yeah. you know, we see smart as very one dimensional in our world. And it's so interesting to me how we can be smart in a lot of different areas. 
All right. We have three more. I have three more. Let me just list them off so we don't, we don't forget here. So Black Sheep, Creatively Curious, and Faith Driven. So let's talk about, let's talk about those three. So Black Sheep is, I'm always known to be metamorphosizing. Is that metamorphing, metamorphosizing? Whatever the correct word is here. But um, <laughs> over the course of whatever I do, right? So it's funny because if you look at my senior page in my senior year yearbook, my parents actually, you know how they buy the page of your senior yearbook? So it's a picture of me with all different images of how I've metamorphosized over the course of my high school. And it's me with like, like, you know, like a Fu Manchu beard. I've got like long hair. I've got like, you know, different types of outfits. I'm wearing like, you know, a sharp suit or I'm wearing something scruffy. So I'm, I'm always changing and I think I thrive on change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, where I feel most complacent is when I'm in change or I know change is, is, is possible. So that combined with sort of being a black sheep in the family, like going against the grain and doing unconventional things has been a little bit of a place of tension just because, you know, there's certain things that are expected of you as, you know, becoming a doctor, you know, getting the education, but then taking an unconventional route really posed a lot of friction. And we can probably get into some of that stuff, but at the end of the day, yeah, I'm in constant change and I'm a black sheep and I do things very unconventional. Yeah. And really, it sounds like focus on being unique. And a black sheep, I don't know if many know, but their wool can't be dyed. So they are one of a kind and they, they cannot be altered. Did you know that? Oh, I had, I had no idea. No. Yeah, I was on a call with Brent Manswear. He's the author of the book, Black Sheep. And he has a brilliant message about being able to stand out and be uniquely you. Um, it also aligns so much with tear out the tags. And it just made me think of that when you said black sheep, because, you know, oftentimes it's seen as a negative, but as we grow older, we really recognize that if you can be a black sheep and be uniquely you and metamorphosize into different things and evolve, it's really so valuable in this world today. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. There, I mean, there's so many things I can point to. Even I used to throw parties back in high school, this thing called Young God, Young God Jams that we used to, me and my friend Young used to throw. And um, we won a, uh, we used to hold these lip syncing contests and a song <laughs> that me and my buddies did. And it's like, it, not intentional, but it was that, you remember that song by Black Sheep called The Choice Is Yours? Yeah. <laughs> Who's a black sheep? What's a black sheep? Don't know who I am when I come home when you sleep. Um, yeah, so that was so funny because that song has always stuck with me because I've always been a black sheep, but that's um, a sort of a defining uh, moment of the past. That's going to be your theme <laughs> song. I'm, I expect you to start singing that on your social handles. <laughs> <laughs> right. Engine, engine, number yeah. nine. Please We've be- never had a singer on the show. <laughs> Dr. G, you're, you, you're covering, covering all the roles there are to have in this world. So, Okay, lastly, faith-driven. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I'm faith-driven, meaning I'm not religious, but I do believe that there's something worldly beyond us as ourselves. And so I believe, you know, I'm a storyteller. I believe religion is a way of sharing stories that resonate with people to ensure that we have structure to set us on a good path with good values, regardless of what religion that is, right? So whether it be Christianity, Islam, and it's, I went to a Christian school. I was at church every Wednesday, right? But I'm Hindu. And so for me... um, you know, having multiple exposures to different religions taught me one thing, which is we're all focused on similar outcomes. Yes. The way we believe in the story changes. So for me, when you ask the question, if there's a question that says, do you believe in God or not? I believe in a higher being than us. So the, the, I guess the answer would be yes. Um, but I believe it in a way of that's defined by faith 
to guide me to do what's right to serve us in the world and what's right for others. Not so much like I'm, I'm, I'm bound by the, by the book. What I like about that too, is not having to define it as a religion allows us to come together more because sometimes the tags that we wear that associate with our specific religious beliefs actually create a spirit of religion that divides us. It sort of defeats the purpose of the love that we seek when mm. we are in our faith and spirituality. And we, we, we get so bound by some of the rituals as well. And then when we deviate from the rituals, we think that there's something that's wrong from doing that. And, and it's, it's, it's a weird situation because rituals are there to make us feel like we're actually contributing or, or doing something tangible to follow my faith or follow you know, the, the, the belief system. But at the same time, coming down on somebody for not following rituals is not something that should be um, accepted, right? So, and it's weird because I, I, I mean, I bring that up specifically because my parents were to some degree very ritualistic in certain things with the Hindu culture. They weren't basically saying you have to believe Hinduism. They're saying just believe in something bigger than yourself. But for them, you know, rituals were an important thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. So creatively curious. I love how you label things creatively curious. What is creatively curious? Well, I, I didn't want to just say curious alone um, because I think curious takes many different forms and shapes and, and directions. And it can lead to, it can kind of lead to bad things, right? I mean, curious can oh, lead you down a bad path pretty quickly. It certainly can. I mean, one thing I, I'm, I, I'm very, I, I'm very self-aware that I, I have a very, I get addicted to things very quickly. So I'm very careful of that. So, but um, uh, the meaning, if we go back to stories about gambling and stuff in high school, yeah, <laughs> or college, You're giving me a nugget there, huh? <laughs> but I'm mean, creatively curious. I mean, I, I can't, it was just, I didn't, I didn't think of it as being creative at the time. I feel like ever since I was a child, there's always thing. I always gravitated towards things about the creative process, I guess, right. Wow. The idea of making something out of nothing just fascinated me. And I'd, I'd sit there with pencils and sit outside with a chair in the lawn and face the house and draw. At one point in my life, I wanted to become an architect. That was my, my dream job. Um, then I, you know, I like to um, explore, you know, throwing parties. And that was made me creatively curious about getting and gathering people together. Mm -hmm. And then in college, um, I'd sneak out and I'd do slam poetry and I'd write poetry. Oh, and, cool. uh, you know, I wouldn't, tell, I wouldn't tell my friends. I would just sneak out on a Wednesday night, this place called Black Cat in D.C. And God, it's one of some of the best experiences I've ever had. And, and I was a creative writing major and an English lit major. So and I, those are the two subjects I hated in high school. But that's what my majors ended up being. So what a cool story. It's amazing how that happens. Something can be something you don't even enjoy to something that you're so devoted to and really enjoying the creative process. And you talked about when we first chatted on the phone, how being an MD, a lot of people will template you and tag you according to what we believe a doctor sh should or is like. Yeah, I've, um, God, I, I struggled with that for so long. I think I've still struggled with it, although I've, I've embraced it a little bit more. And rather than try to resist that perception that people have of doctors, I go with it. And I, and instead of doing a, no, I'm not, I, I pull the classic improv reaction and say, yes, and right. So I can be a doctor and something else, but just because I'm a doctor doesn't mean I'm not that right. So that's kind of the perspective I take now. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this classic community perception, society perception that, you know, doctors have to act and be a certain way. Right. 
And that we do that with a lot of industries. So the fourth thing written on most tags is material and material is the personality traits that are woven together that make you, you, you kind of already mentioned being introverted and more into self-thought. So what's one personality trait that I might not know about you without asking you this question? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's a couple of things that come to mind. You know, for one, I think integrity is a big one. Like people do what they say they're going to do. Um, that's a big pet peeve of mine. I don't like false promises. You know, I, I think that's part of why people suggest that one of my key values is being able to really pay attention to the relationships of the people that I keep in my network, because I just don't see them as network. I see them as people that can learn from me. I can learn from them. I mean, they're, they're family. And, and I think of that as an inner circle and I treat them like such. And so when people don't reciprocate that back, that irks me. Um, and I feel hurt, you know, sometimes when that happens. So that's probably one thing. The other, another one is, God, I'm, I, ideas, like I can't stop. I can't stop. Like my brain and this is my, my kids, my wife will always tell me they know the signals. Like I, I have papers and pens <laughs> and, you know, like I like this. This is my daughter makes me for Christmas. Sticky notes? Are you a sticky note person? Look at, I mean, I'm a sticky. Well, I've got sticky notes, but like she, she knows how many pens that she made this little cute little. Oh, this is a, it's a, what he's holding up is a cardboard container that she, his daughter has together and taped together for him to hold his pens in. How cute. Oh my God. And I'm holding up dozens of pens. Um, I obsess. I have, you know, stuff written on napkins. I'm showing be a napkin with some notes on it. I, that's an obsession of mine. I can't, my hand, there's my palm. Look at that. <laughs> so I have notes everywhere. I have, I have ink on my palms. I've got napkins around me, scratch paper, pens everywhere to the point where it's really obsessive. And, and it, does it feel organized or is it something that you sort of, like, does it get to a point where it feels overwhelming? Uh, no, not for me. To everyone else around me, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. But this is like, if somebody comes in my room, like, I know exactly, like, it's organized mess. If somebody comes into my room and maneuvers things around, I will, like, it'll make, drive me crazy. <laughs> because unless I've logged it down into sort of patterns or wherever I take down all my notes... And I have a process around that whole thing, by the way. But um, yeah, it would drive me nuts because then it's just all of a sudden my messy ideas become disorganized thoughts, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can teach me how to organize because I relate a lot to the notes everywhere. I'm like the sticky note queen, but um, I my thoughts are not organized. Like I have all kinds <laughs> of to-dos and notes and none of them make sense, you know. So you could teach me your process. That'd be great. <laughs> Okay. So the fifth thing written on most tags is care instructions. And this is really when you were growing up and you figured out how you were going to care for yourself, did you learn to positively talk to yourself or did you learn to negatively talk to yourself? Oh, uh, growing up, I was always negative on myself, uh, for sure. I think a switch flipped for me late in my life. And I want to say probably around 29-ish or so. I can almost pinpoint around that period, 28, 29-ish. It's when we had moved to New York. And the switch for me, as far as self-care, was when I decided to stop living the expectations of others mm -hmm. and start living what matters to me. Yeah. And when I switched that over, 
then I took care. Then it was about self-care. Yeah. But in a positive way before it was all negative. And it's amazing how we don't even realize that we're living under those expectations until we do. So the sixth and final thing is foreign language and foreign language is a little bit different than what people might assume. This is a category where someone has said something to you that was either hurtful, didn't make sense, or just was inappropriate. We find often our bully in this category. So if you had a bully growing up, you might channel to that mean thing that you were told often. Um, some people have a family member who would label them a certain way. Um. Yeah, I had two. One is, I don't want to say it didn't belong to me. I think it belonged to me, but not in the way that others valued it belonged to me. So different is the word. I've always felt that I was different, but other people felt that I was different in a negative connotation. Like, why do you always have to go against the grain? Why do you always have to be unconventional? Why do you always have to explore new things and experiment new things? And it just happens to be that the environment that I was in just didn't accept that. And so different was not a good thing to be. Although in, in my mind, it always was, and it still is. Yeah. And, you know, I now have my tribe. So that to me, doesn't, doesn't matter if I'm around that crowd or not. It doesn't bug me. The other one is related to my lifelong learning and sense of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And that term is uh, know-it-all. Mm. And so I almost, many times actually, I, I've now learned to sort of bite my tongue and not chime in every single circumstance, right? Like I always, cause I, I, I'm, I mean, I'll admit I'm pretty well read across industries, across topics, across expertise. And that's kind of my job, right? As, as someone who is an innovation advisor to executives, that's what I'm being paid to do is keep pulse on all the stuff. And so, you know, I do a lot of real estate and I do pro forma modeling. I can, I can give you an analysis on the multifamily market, on office, industrial, and so when people talk about that, they're kind of like, who's this guy who's a doctor running a media company talking about real estate? Well, because I've been managing real estate for the past 25 years, but it comes across as Mr. Nodal. And so sometimes I just stay quiet and it's sort of, it's, it's unfortunate, but sometimes I just have to sort of bite my tongue and just be like, listen, I may have an opinion or a thought on this, but I'm just going to keep it to myself. Yeah. It's so funny because I, being an extrovert, I would label that similarly as, but as a me monster. And my mentor, you know, has this phrase. So she, and very well known in the extrovert world, cause we're uncomfortable with silence. So we will fill space. Well, oftentimes we will also steal conversation, but it's interesting you being an introvert and yeah. me being a self-proclaimed extrovert that we have that curb that we both have to pay attention to for different reasons, right? So we may have a tag that's somewhat similar, but the reasoning behind it and the tools we need to use are also, it sounds like very different. I love that. And I am going to use this to segue into the first time we chatted. And I keep mentioning this because it was just such a valuable conversation, but I said to you, I'm the Jane of all trades, but the master of none. And do you remember what you said to me? I think I said something along the lines, you're a polymath. Yeah. You said that's a tag. And I was like almost taken off my chair. Like, Oh, he knows my content better than I do. (laughs) And you did, you said you're a specialized polymath. And I would love if you would explain what is a specialized polymath. Yeah. I think the specialized polymaths are what's actually needed in this, in this world. And I think we tend to label people as being sort of jack of all trades and generalists and discounting their value when in fact, extreme specialization without having breadth of experience 
is actually a little bit more or a little less value in today's world. And, and so a polymath to me is basically a collection of someone's varying experiences that when you put them together, create a unique specialization that that's authentic to you. And so that to me, I feel is much more of a rarity and, mm -hmm. and of higher value than somebody who only knows, you know, a lot about a little thing or a little about a lot. But when you combine what I call talent stack, it's actually not my terminology. I heard it from, from Scott Adams, who's the creator of Dilbert. And he wrote that, that notion of talent stack is basically a stack of all of your different experiences, expertises, and learnings that when you put them together, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that to me is a, a specialized polymath. It's funny, somebody just sent me an email this morning. I forget what it was relating to, but he says, specialization is for insects. And I was like, you know, because insects essentially are, are defined to do one role, but a specialized polymath has many superpowers um, that ultimately only they can actually solve and come to the rescue because it's their unique combination of skills and, mm -hmm. and thought processes that make them that make them special. Yeah, and this is the one area where I don't agree with conventional education and formal university degrees. And also the process in which we go and, and gain employment in at least the United States is it's very hard to really understand somebody's full specialized polymath traits when you're looking at degrees and certifications and qualifications that are written on a piece of paper. And they're generally one page long. Cause I can tell you after having, we've only had a hand, handful of conversations, maybe less. There's no way you could put Dr. G on one piece of paper. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Yeah. It's part of, part of this is a function of our industrialized educational system, right? So it's, it's, it's made this way by design and it doesn't, it doesn't work in today's society or, or, or as we look forward, but it takes generations in order for a paradigm shift to occur. But if you look at the industrial you know, revolution at that time, we created, I mean, our education system was designed at that time. And so we designed it to be this way where we're trying to get people through an educational process so that when they come out, they just create the same widget or cog over and over and over again. So it was a very specialized set of education. And so when you look at you know, high school or college, it's all by subject matter. Like I'm a, a marketer or I'm you know, a biologist, right? So it, it's all by subject matter because that's just the way we designed our educational system to turn out cogs in a, in a repeat factory. But when you look at the future as not necessarily churning out cogs in a, in a warehouse, but rather trying to solve big problems, problems aren't solved by one skill set. Mm -hmm. Problems are solved by combining a set of skills that when you put together, create an ultimate answer or solution that you're looking for. And so our educational system is, is lacking from that perspective, right? It's not critical thinking skills, it's subject matter skills. And so I think until we shift that, we're still gonna have you know, the, these tags that people put on all of us because it's, our, it's sort of our heuristic that we define for ourselves. It's the way we can manage and make sense of the world. Yeah, and you know that's my biggest hope from 2020 is I really would like to see a conversation happening about changing education. I have small children. I know you do too. And it'd be really incredible to see that conversation ignite from going through a year where everything was unsure and unstable, um, and sort of rattling underneath our feet. So we can only hope that the conversation continues. Cause I, I, I am hearing a lot, especially in our industry of people saying this saying, you know, 
I went to school. I did X, Y, Z. I followed the conventional path. I did everything my parents asked me to do. I got married. I got divorced. I had, you know, it's like kind of that, that tragic story of whoops. I followed the path and the path went off a cliff. Mm. And so it's neat to see people having conversations saying there are other ways to accomplish success and there are other ways to measure success than what we've been taught growing up. Yeah. It's so funny when I was, um, one of the first poems I wrote back in college, it was a response to Robert Frost's poem. You know, he had that mm -hmm. poem that he says that the road not taken. Yes. And I wrote a response to Robert Frost being all pissed off <laughs> saying, well, there's a reason why people take the road more taken because it's, it's proven and um, you know, it's easier and why create difficulty when you don't need to create difficulty. And for a big portion of my life. That's kind of the perspective I took. Like, why am I going to be the pioneer to carve something new or try something new or do something different? You know, when people before me have already trodden the path and I'm going to take the well-trodden path because it's proven. Yeah. But it's funny because you don't really make progress or get anywhere by doing that. It's just a status quo, which is right now I'm the status quo agitator. So I definitely don't believe in that process anymore. But well, no, but I think it's a perfect example of how that's what we're told to do is just go get in line. Mm -hmm. And then someday we're in our mid thirties or mid forties or mid fifties and, and so on going, I don't want to be in this damn line anymore. <laughs> Excuse my yeah. language, but you know, there's many people who are feeling stuck and wanting to get out of the line for lack of better words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The future of education stuff, this reminds me of that point is, um, you know, part of it's a function of need and part of it's a function of what we can measure. Yeah. And so although like the need has changed in terms of what we talked about, the industrial revolution and churning out cogs or people who can build cogs and, and so forth, but the need has changed. But how do you measure unpredictability? How do you measure diversity? Right. So it's easy to measure standardized stuff around subject lines. Right. It's hard to measure things that require bits and pieces pulled from different types of expertise and subject. Right. So Absolutely. I don't think we'll probably see it in our kids' lifetime, unfortunately. But I mean, maybe it's a question of do we need to still measure at all? Yeah. And that's maybe, maybe the measure is the outcome, not in the process itself. Yeah. I don't disagree with that at all. Well, and it's interesting because some of the folks that listen to the show are still working in a nine to five that they've been in for 20 years or a career path that they feel limited in and want to get out of that line. And you did this. So you were a physician and you were treating, diagnosing, paying attention to symptoms. And you wrote a personal essay on Alzheimer's. And so you mentioned in this, the word boomerang and I even saying it have emotion, but I'd love for you to tell me again, how being a doctor and being trained to label the actual symptoms and treat the actual symptoms and how the patient played into that for you and what you kind of discovered about tags in the medical world. I came to this realization and conclusion just to sort of preface this when I was caretaking for my dad who had Alzheimer's and eventually passed away from Alzheimer's. And it's hard, like what, what hat do you put on, right? Do you put the hat that you're a doctor caretaking for my dad? Do I put the hat on as a son? Do I put the hat on as a caretaker? Do I put the hat on as something else? And so it's, it's this weird perspective and I was completely blindsided by it because we'd always imagined having to take care of our parents for physical illness, but mental illness in terms of cognitive decline was something that we were completely unprepared for. And I think anyone who experiences that is completely unprepared for. And every experience is unique. 
And in part of the realization, I'll, I'll just share one specific experience that we had that really highlighted sort of what got me to write that article. I was, you know, my, my, my dad every morning would come down and he has a sort of ritual and, and sit at the table. And that's sort of the process of Alzheimer's being, you know, doing these ritualistic things, but he would sit there and then he'd have his breakfast and he had some motor difficulties as well as a result of the Alzheimer's. So probably some Parkinsonian types of symptoms in there as well. And so he couldn't communicate with us. And so he'd get this really agitated look on his face and would get really angry. And so this happened continuously for quite some time. And, you know, we go into the doctor's office, we go get evaluated, we go to the neurologist, we go to multiple different doctors to, to sort of get assessments. And they all put these labels, always getting agitated or, you know, it, it's sundowning or whatever it might be, right? There are all these labels that we have. And what I noticed that we, that we did is we ultimately started treating the labels. And so I was treating agitation and we were treating sundowning and we were treating fatigue mm -hmm. and we were treating anxiety, like, but we weren't treating the root of why the individual is experiencing those. And healthcare is filled with all of this stuff, right? Healthcare is, is built on labeling patients, not at a fault. I mean, it's, it's partly because you have to organize and make sense of patterns that we see yeah. and you can't do it unless you actually put labels. But when you forget that there's a human behind it and there's a cause for these labels, then it becomes a little bit dangerous. Well, and potentially other forms to heal first because hmm. it is it's an expanding and growing problem. So we're diagnosing and medicating so quickly and we're forgetting that there could be ways to help heal that are not just through conventional prescription drugs. Yeah, and part of this is a, is, is, is a function of the system that we created, right? So we're, we're in a system now where we get our healthcare, at least here in the States from, from our employer and we can bounce insurance to insurance or doctor to doctor. And so there's no continuity of care. Yeah. And so it's easy to treat the label, right? Because if you're not spending time and getting to know the individual, then all you have are labels to treat. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just a function of, of how we've, we've structured our healthcare system in today's market. And we need to figure out ways to do it better. In the essay, I, I, I talked about a realization with this patient, actually in, in one of my TED talks I gave, I talked about this patient that I had that kept coming back from the nursing home. And she was essentially what we call the boomerang patient. And the boomerang, but we, we'd have, you know, we had labels for these patients like, oh, here's another boomerang, right? She was just in yesterday. Now she's back again. And again, we treat the symptom, um, we treat the label and then send them back. And then they, they hop on back without getting to the underlying root of why, why it was causing that issue in the first place. And so one of the biggest realizations that I had that transformed my entire perspective and actually got me to write sort of a, an apology letter to all of my patients of the past, um, was this very simple notion of trying to figure out how to live in their reality. So it's fine if you've got labels and you've got these different things that you're assigning to the patient, but the thing to never forget is to always live in their reality. And so what I mean by that is in, in the world of medicine, you know, we're so centrist and egocentric in terms of they're coming into my hospital, my ER, my clinic, my office, they need to conform to the way I treat and the way I conduct my service offering as a, as a health professional. When the real form of healing is if we allow ourselves to step into their reality, mm -hmm. right? And understand where they're coming from versus them coming into our world. And so I saw the result of this in going back to, to my dad. My dad wasn't getting, wasn't just agitated for the sake of being agitated because of condition. 
what we later realized is that he felt that while we were sitting at the kitchen island having breakfast and he's over off on the side having breakfast on the side, he was getting agitated, not because he was angry or anything, it's because he wanted to be a part of the conversation, but couldn't say it, couldn't express it. Right. And so that one simple thing of us saying, well, let's be in his reality for a second. He can't speak. He still notices what's going on. He just wants to be at the table with us. Yeah. And feel like he's part of the conversation, even though he can't contribute to that conversation. We made that simple change. One, two, three drugs gone. Oh, that's incredible. Right. I mean, it's just you strip away. And then and then once you keep adding all these drugs, you start treating the side effects of those drugs because those drugs have side effects. Yes. Yeah. And we just my husband lost his father earlier this year. We lost I mean, I lost him, too. We're very sad to have said goodbye to him, but he was fighting prostate cancer. And by the end, what almost took him was the actual pain meds. So that man got off a, you know, the harsher Dilaudid pain med and actually with really mind over matter, I can't imagine the kind of pain he was in, but it resolved so many of the other symptoms that were happening. The hallucinations, he would, he would sort of pour himself out of his hospital bed at times. Um, and it was really a side effect of this really heavy drugged state that he was in. And so, um, it just, that resonates so much with what we yeah. just walked through with him. And there's always, there's always this notion as physicians that we feel like we're not doing our job if we do nothing. Yeah. And I think, uh, there's this one post that I wrote some, some years back that said, one of the critical things that we need, to, if you want to properly care for people, sometimes the right thing to do is nothing. Yeah. Right. And, and this over-treatment, this, this idea that if I'm not doing something, it's not serving the patient, it's serving us. That's our ego. That's our guilt right. that sets in when we feel like if I'm not doing anything, that guilt sits on me, not, not the other person. Yeah. And so we end up over, over-treating, over-diagnosis, over-interventions. And that's just how the field of medicine has become, partly because it's a, it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's a high medical liability field, right? So we're, right. we practice, we practice defensive medicine. Which makes sense. It makes sense. Cause if you're going to get rocks thrown at you either way, you want to make sure you're on the right end of that, of that war. Yeah. But you're also finding, so you have launched a very exciting project. So just on Tuesday, you dropped your first episode and I'm going to let you share the title and everything. Cause I think it's so exciting, but I, I want to preface this by saying, your trailer that I listened to a couple of weeks before Christmas had me sobbing, literally sobbing. And so the whole premise behind this is healing through storytelling. And so tell us where we can find it, what it is. Tell me all about it. Yeah, I'd love to. We're so excited about this project. It's called Superhumans. And it's actually one of the first original shows that's coming out of our new media company called Well Played. It's at wellplayed.health um, and superhumans.health is the, the original show. Um, but this sort of stemmed from the seed of an idea that by listening to the stories of others, we can actually heal ourselves. And we see bits and pieces of ourselves in the stories of others. Um, and it comes from this notion. I mean, I, I went through a number of harrowing experiences over the past couple of years, both in terms of my father caretaking, but I also suffered a physical injury in the, in the middle of, of Africa that I had to be medevaced out and we're in the middle of a safari. It's, it's this crazy, crazy long story, but- I don't know if you can it, skip over that. Can we go to- <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's, let's co- we'll, we'll circle back to that. So, you know, I've, I had these harrowing experiences over the course of years and they're very lonely. 
you know, to be to be real and frank, you, you think that you're alone in the experience, partly because everyone else around you is kind of like, oh, just think positive, be positive. And sometimes like when I was sitting laying laid up on the bed after my surgery from that injury in Africa, you know, sometimes I just wanted to be like, F you, like, let me just, you know, sit in my misery for a little bit and, and experience what I need to experience and the grief and, you know, my life, I won't be able to go to skiing anymore. I won't be able to play ball with my, my kids anymore. So let me just grovel in that for a little bit and go the approach. And so what I realized in that was then a friend of asked me to come talk about my Africa injury on stage at one of these retreats in Montana. And I get up there and I was like, well, why would anyone care about my story? Like, is my injury, like what, you know, it's, doesn't relate to anyone else. And so I get up there, I tell the story. And when I got off stage, I got bombarded by people, not because it was, it was my, like they had, you know, a similar story to tell, but it's because they had their own personal story that they saw and, you know, came out with different outcomes just by hearing my story. And so that started a dialogue and a conversation. So that's kind of the premise behind why we did superhumans. It's basically people telling their personal stories in first person, the way they saw it, the way they experienced it. We don't give any direct lessons from it. People listen to it and they get to see themselves in the stories of others and find their tribe and know that they're not alone Yeah, and that they're loved. And your first episode that you released is by a gentleman named Mark Brand. And the opening of the episode, he says, I'm a kind, gentle, and fearless drunk. And man, did that just grab a hold of every part of me that talks about labels? Because those things don't really go together upon conventional thought. And it was such a powerful introduction to his story. So tell me about Mark. Wow. What, what a Mark is such an incredible human being and whoever, if you ever, any, I mean, if anything, if you're going to listen to one episode, go listen to the first episode that we, we put on there. Mark is God. I look up to him so much, very inspiring individual. Here's, here's a guy who grew up with a lot of struggles in his, his upbringing, had a loving family, but a very difficult uh, structure to be around and ended up going down a path that was, you know, considered, um, you know, deviant for, for many folks and became somewhat of a rebel in his own, in his own way that left him on couches, you know, homeless at certain times. And, you know, just at a, a level of comfort, making friends with other people who are alcoholics and, and drug addicts and so forth. And that was his comfort area because that was the tribe that accepted him. Um, accepted all of his deviance and rebel nature of things. And so he went down that path and, and he talks about in this story, we zoom into one particular moment where he sort of fell off the wagon, I guess, and struggled with reconciling what success looks like for him or what he actually wanted to be or where he fit into the world. And I don't, I'm trying not to give away the full story, but you know, it's, it's, it's got a happy ending, at least where it stands right now. Um, it's funny because he has relapsed in this past year and but he's come back out of it again. So it's a real struggle. It's an ongoing thing. Yeah. But it's not even though he talks about his personal story of addiction and, and going down that path of, of alcoholism. Um, it's not necessarily a story focused on that. It's a story about self-sabotage and self-destruction and imposter syndrome and, and not feeling like you fit in and going to the root cause of what's causing him to have all of these different struggles in life. And I mean, the good, the good part is, is that he comes out on top of all this. He now runs a culinary empire and a multi-million dollar business where he only hires incarcerated people. So he creates upward mobility for people just like himself 
who struggled in similar situations and he's doing incredible good for this world. Well, and it was so incredible to listen to all the ways that he was labeling himself or that he felt labeled through his process and really tagged with all these, these things that like we, you and I talked about just feeling different. So he talks about being grade 12 educated. So I'm assuming he's Canadian because that's how Canadians talk. Um, and so he's grade 12 educated. He, you know, gets into Stanford. He's at Stanford. He's an older guy at this point. So he calls himself old. He says, I was tattooed and the only tattooed person there. And just how much he felt like he didn't fit in and then talks about attaching that imposter syndrome tag. And so I think that's so such a valid point to, I actually call it tag stackers. So we might call it imposter syndrome, but there's all these things underneath it that made him feel like he didn't fit in and made him feel like he, you know, wasn't going to succeed in that arena. Yeah. I, I, and I think, um, that's probably going to, you're going to see that across all of the stories that we share across superhumans. I mean, they all come with their perceived tags that have led them to the struggles and, you know, overcoming some of those adversities in their, in their periods of life. And I think tags is one of those universal elements and we, we define ourselves with, with tags for good or bad, but, uh, yeah, they impact us pretty significantly. You'll see through the stories of superhumans just just how they, some of them overcome of them and overcome their tags, and some of them are still, you know, bound by the perception of what their tags, you know, have have meant to them or being defined by others. Yeah, and we're really exposed to tags through our whole lives, so we have to really learn what we want to wear and what we don't. There have been countless wonderful tags that you wear, just as a the fantastic human that you are. But as we are saying goodbye, I would love to hear. What is your favorite tag that you wear or the tag you're most proud of? I'd probably say the one I'm most proud of is I'm deeply caring. And I think, you know, you look at the project of superhumans, like this comes, I, I don't care what happens with the result of this. I mean, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's about helping others heal and getting them to a place where, you know, through this medium of, of audio, we call it an, an audio docuseries. Mm-hmm we can help care for thousands and thousands of people. And I think, you know, whether you look at from my patient perspective, you look at it from, you know, innovation perspective, everything's centered around ultimately deeply caring about the audiences that we serve um, and the people that are around us. So that's what I'm most proud of for sure. I, I love that. And I thank you for sharing with our audience today and just bringing your wisdom and all the value that you bring every time I get to have a conversation with you and we get to share it with many more people today. Where can everybody reach you, get, get in touch with you, see your content, give us the scoop. Yeah. So about me is, uh, I've got a complicated spelling name, so maybe you can go into the show, show notes and get the spelling of it. But my website is drgothamgulati.com. But more importantly, if you want to go check out Superhumans, you can go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any of those, look up Superhumans. It's by a production company called Well Played, which is also my production company. Or you can just go to superhumans.health and get a lot of links from there. But those are probably two of the best places to go. Fantastic. Thank you for joining me today. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. The pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me, Bea.